Welcome to Semio Bites, bite-sized podlog episodes related to theological semiotics. Hi there, you're listening to a multi-part episode, so be sure to tune in and subscribe to catch all of this series of episodes to fully experience this topic. Howdy, Terry. How's it going? I'm doing fine. Hello again. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good, you know. Yeah. Um, all things considered, we did have our snow that I talked about to you yesterday, and um, it all came overnight, and... Needless to say, there are certain people that will not be dissuaded from going out. They canceled all the vaccination clinics, but synagogue services are still scheduled. Mm. Well, I got dropped. Uh, they hit their 30,000 mark in my group. So mm. I didn't get to, they called and disinvited me. <laughs> you know, um, we have this concept within Judaism. We have, there's two parts. One is intentions are nice but it's what you actually do that counts yeah and then and then the other part says is that if you attempt to do something and you're unable to complete it you are rewarded as if you did the whole thing i think i'd defer to that one <laughs> so but no i mean they, they both go along saying is like because somebody may in the past i've seen the argument oh well i had good intentions but you know the holocaust happened it's like no, not how it works. Your intentions aren't enough. Put some, put, you, need, you need to actually do some driving here and put some work in and do some action. And the fact is, if you did just a little bit of work, if you couldn't finish the job, but you at least tried, then you're gonna be credited as if you did finish it. Yeah, well, I did do, I did a good bit of work for the long questionnaires and such, but anyway, no big deal. We'll see how it works out. I'm, I'm going to follow yeah. up on the, the program and see how they finish their third phase and if they go for the emergency use authorization. Well, you know, the, the more the merrier when it comes to getting potential solutions out there. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. So yesterday we were talking about Habakkuk and then we had to, we had to stop because of time, which is where we're picking up today. And you wanted to delve a little bit beyond in continue your thought process. So I'm giving you the opportunity just to pick up right from there. Okay. Well, where we were was in uh, the Old Testament, from the Christian perspective, the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, which is one of the minor prophets, so-called. And I had suggested we talk about it, and Yoni agreed. And I especially appreciated what he brought to the conversation last time, Yoni. You really were able to embellish my perspective on what I had read before. A few months ago when I, like I read it, when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> a few months ago when I read it, this one section of this book, uh, the second chapter of this book really resonated with me in terms of prophecy from ancient times that really seemed to have a clear grasp of future times. And that's what grabbed me in the second chapter of this. And we talked about the first chapter last time, Habakkuk's first plea or his first prayer or his first, well, not really his prayer, but his plea or his cry uh, in the Zondervan that I'm using, it was for, referred to as his complaint, <laughs> his first complaint, yeah. uh, which struck me as odd. And I'm glad, Yoni, that you pointed out that your, your sources did not identify it as a complaint, but as a plea, right? Yeah, well, it was a plea, but there, there's also another component here that um, we did not um, catch yesterday because I'm taking a look at chapter three and because it's a, it's a psalm, it's a poem, right? And uh, Rashi, um, one of our greater sages, he was in France during, right before the Crusades, a lot of his family died in the Crusades and he, was a, he had a vineyard, but he was... Um, he is well known in language circles of linguistics because of his meticulous notes on the Torah and everything. And he constantly referred to old French words that when it came to the point where translators were trying to figure out old French, they relied on him as the resource that he was more or less their Rosetta Stone for understanding old French because he kept such meticulous notes in old French and then translated it to Hebrew. Ah. 
And so um, he, he's well known in that area, but also he's considered the foremost authority on the shot. If there's a simple understanding of a text, he will always address that simple understanding. And if he does not address the text, then there's no question beyond its plain reading. It's like, if you read something like, I wonder if there's something more, he'll say if there's more or not. Like he's well known for diving in, he's everywhere. Anyways, he says at the beginning of chapter three, regarding the first verse, it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet for erroneous utterances. That's what it starts with. And he, he says on that erroneous utterances part, that Habakkuk had protested God's strict judgment against the sinners of Israel. Now he expresses regret for saying those things to God, that they're erroneous utterances, that he stepped out of line. There's referring to chapter one, verses four and 14. And uh, verse four is that's why the Torah's weakened and justice never emerges since the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice emerged distorted. And if, if God is the uh, judgment by which justice is, that's kind of like a slight. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a sin. It's not necessarily a full complaint. But for somebody at his level of communication with God, at his level of reverence towards God, mm-hmm. not not cool, man. Not cool. It's a little over the top, right? And so, yeah. but we also learn that within Judaism that everybody's judged where they're at, not according to the same standard. Ah. And so, for me, I can make mistakes with Hebrew left and right because that's where I'm at. But for this Rav down this, and that might throw off his entire day. Yeah. So different different levels. Yeah. The word in, in verse four in the Zondervan NIV is perverted. So that justice is perverted. Mm. Yeah, that'd be, that's even worse. Worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, God, you're a little perverse there. You shouldn't be going there. Yeah, right. That's his not quite... Uh, place he needs to go <laughs> yeah yeah and what was the other verse 12 or 15 uh, 14, 14 14 which was then that mm-hmm. you have made man like the helpless for the fish of the sea like creeping things without a ruler right but god is ruler yeah 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 a little over the top again and he he, he confesses this in the in the third third chapter of the book right confesses this yeah the very Really, the third chapter, it's the first verse. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's it's this recognition of like, for where I'm at with you, God, I went too far and I'm sorry for that. I'm showing Teshuva. I know everybody else can, sh- or re- repentance is what Teshuva means. I know everybody else can too. Yeah. It's not really clear in the in the uh, NIV that he's, that he's putting it that way. His first verse, you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all it says is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionoth, which is a Jewish word, right? Um, Can you pass that? Yeah. Or share the screen, I guess, is the word. Uh, I mean, I'm no doubt probably mispronouncing it. And the footnote comes with it, by the way, or the reference anyway. Uh, shiggy on us. Okay. Shiggy. Okay. I'm just looking at that word real quick because I have not um, heard that before. Strong emotion, erratic wandering, or wild tumult. Tumult. Um, okay. So, shiggy on us. There's a, seems to be a all the websites that are pulling up are all Christian websites. Really? Huh. Yeah. Maybe it's not Hebrew. Maybe it's Greek. Well, they're saying it's Hebrew. Interesting. But like, I'm not well, seeing. The note I have just says probably a literary or musical term. Interesting. Yeah. Um. Yeah weird i'm not sure how to answer that sorry yeah we'll just have to kind of wave our hands on that one uh it's just kind of it strikes me as being kind of a time stamp or a context marker well there's one last thing i can take a look and see if i can figure out Gimel. 
Shig Yonos. Okay. All right. Now I have the Hebrew translate. Okay. Shig. Sorry, I'm reading it in the Hebrew. Okay. I'm curious. I spoke mistakenly. Because mm. that goes exactly to what you were saying. Yeah. Have a turn and above beyond the pale. <laughs> I guess it's also um, found in Megillus Ruth, uh, the book of Ruth. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, back to book two. Yeah. Um, at the end of book one, uh, he he raises his second plea um, in in the NIV the second complaint and he says Lord you are not from ever are you not from everlasting my God my holy one you will never die you Lord have appointed them to execute judgment you my rock have ordained them to punish your eyes yeah. are pure to look on evil you cannot tolerate wrongdoing why then do you tolerate the treacherous why are you not? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You've made people like the fish in the sea, and so on and so on. And then at the very beginning of book two, chapter uh, two, or chapter two, yeah, he says, "I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he, you, the Lord, uh, will will say to me, Habakkuk the prophet, and what answer I am mm -hmm. to give others to this complaint or to this plea." And that's where it got really interesting to me was in the Lord's answer. Uh, let's see, we'll go, I guess, the first few verses here. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so the herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. So let's stop there because that verse five was the first one that really, really grabbed me. Especially the 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 um, the third and fourth lines because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied that's pretty vivid semiotics <laughs> <laughs> and it just struck me because he's describing a madness a form of madness here that the uh, in, in other conversations I've had in deep adaptation and extinction rebellion uh, lately there's a lot of appeal to an indigenous concept called Witiki or Washiki, which is, was the native Turtle Island, you know, which is what North America was to the indigenous peoples before the white man showed up. But they had that word for a viral madness, not held by an individual, but it was it was a community madness, a group insanity that was consuming everything within reach, within sight destroying and consuming everything. And it was called Watiki Washiki. And supposedly the indigenous saw the white man in that light right off. <laughs> it's not like they had to, oh, this is what's wrong with them. No, they saw what was wrong with them the minute they set foot on the shores, according to the indigenous people's legend. Now I realize that's neither a Christian nor a Hebrew mythology, but it's the same madness, is it not? Greedy as the grave and never satisfied like death. Gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. That that's the first part of this that really struck me. Does the does the Hebrew have a different or does it put any kind of different spin on this? Let's see. <clears throat> Behold, his source defiance unsettled, but the righteous person shall live through his faith. Let's put a pen in that part right there. A man of wine also acts treacherously. He is an arrogant man and does not stay at home. 
He has widened his soul like the grave, and like death, he is not satisfied. He gathered unto himself all the nations and subloaned himself all the peoples. And it continues. Yeah. I think part of what it's trying to highlight is let's see, uh, the Babylonian armament. The Babylon, it, it, the, uh, the commentary does say this is Nebuchadnezzar, or there's, but that's one opinion. We've gone over the other opinions that maybe this is the Roman Empire, maybe this is during the Messianic era, but it does seem to indicate that um, the concept of man plan and God laughs concept is that um, we take charge and we grab on to our own life and we think we really have it under control and we're swinging wildly blindly with an ax not realizing the damage we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Now that pin, I wanted to bring up that pin okay. because I heard you say Yeah, because I heard you say that. And then that's when I rolled away and went to my library because I I was sorting the books yesterday afternoon and I came across this time. I was like, you know, this 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 title sounds familiar. And then you said it today. And it's um it's a book by Rabbi Elihon Monk, The Just Lives by His Faith. Uh -huh. And um, it's a, there's a lot in here that I have not read, but in the foreword, he says something very particularly fascinating I think can help here on that part, which I think is really cool revelation, sort of. Is that the, the Talmud and Matthews 23 and 24 discusses the number of commandments we have to fulfill in order to qualify as true servants of the Lord. The list begins with 613 and is gradually reduced. Uh, King David summarizing these commandments as virtues under 11 headings. Subsequent prophets reduce them even further until finally the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2 verse 4 reduces the demands made upon God into a single one and the just will live by his faith. Rashi says this is not an exercise in semantics, but that David realized times had changed that whereas during the generations close to Moshe, numerous people could be found who were not daunted to try to live up to the call to perform 613 commandments. In David's lifetime, already such a demand would have discouraged people. He therefore set about summarizing them in Psalm 15, listing 11 virtues, which if practiced will assure the, the follower, or in this case, the average Jew, that he has fulfilled God's expectations of him. As succeeding generations reviewed weaker and their resolve to keep all the commandments feeling too much for them, different prophets further reduced the virtues that God requires of us until even further, until finally Habakkuk gives us a single virtue, i.e. faith. Uh -huh. And so he uses that passage as guiding himself when evaluating different sections of Torah and Talmud. Mm -hmm. That's what he had to set in that spot was that, that it's, um, this is the, the most you can boil down all of Torah, the most you can boil down the commandments and observance and religiosity or spirituality or whatever you want to call it, relationship, it comes down to faith. But faith is different in a uh, Hebrew terminology than it is in Christian terminology. How so? When I say I have faith in God, and we've, we've talked about this briefly before, but um, from a Jewish perspective, I say I have faith in God. I'm not saying, oh, I'm just going to believe and have faith that God's going to take care of everything. I'm saying, no, I'm going to measure the evidence. I'm going to see the promises in Torah and how they've been fulfilled and what's happened so far. I'm going to study the character and attributes of God and see how those are replicated in nature and in creation. And that is evidence of those things. And I can live off of evidence with that. My level of faith is simply God's not lying. Right, right. Because if God's telling the truth, then everything else is proven with evidences. Right, right. Well, I, I, when I read that part, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness, it reminded me, of course, in the New Testament, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Right. And then it also reminded me, I think it's Hebrews 11, 1, um, uh, faith, is the assurance, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen, which to me is one of my favorite New Testament verses because that's, in a nutshell, that's the epistemology of the Christian faith, you know? Yeah. So it all, it's, it's good to know that that was a noteworthy uh, 
passage in Habakkuk for such a renowned uh, sage as Rashi, right? So yeah. cool. That's very cool. I'm glad you stuck a pin in it and pointed that out. That's cool. Yeah, and I don't think we would have come across this unless you mentioned it, and then I just decided that I didn't like how the books were sorted. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that's, that's good. So I, just those two lines, man, just from a semiotic perspective, greedy is the grave and death never satisfied. That does so describe the manifest destiny and white supremacy that moved West from Europe into North America, Central and South America. Or the Catholic I think it describes every conquest of man. I mean, think of the Crusades, think of the Inquisition, yeah. think of everything. It's all about greed and yeah. never being satisfied. Yeah, and it's and it goes on today. That's yeah. that, that's what it is fascinating about prophecy like this is there's not a time in which it can't be seen to be true. <laughs> you know, there's there's this book um, that I've been studying with a group, and it's called. Shireen Teshuvah, which means the gateway of repentance. And it's written by Rabbeinu Riona, who um, was a contemporary during the time of Ramchal, who was this big Kabbalist. Um, but what he writes in there is he does this chapter regarding our Bita um, Harar, evil inclination. And he says, one of the ways we do repentance is we put up fences. Just as the Torah has fences, there's there's prohibitions like um, on Shabbat, I can't pick up a hammer because that's a fence to make sure I don't use the hammer, right? And so we have different we have different fences throughout Torah. But he says there's fences that one should place within their own life that block them off from things that are permitted but not beneficial, because the Yitzhahara once it has a taste of that, it's going to say, oh, but you know the thing that's not permitted, that's not so much worse now, is it? It's going to rationalize and lead you astray. And so he uses King David as an example. He says after um, David's um, issue with Bathsheba, Bathsheba that um, what he did, it says in the, says in the, uh, the chronicle or the narratives, it says that um, King David took all of his concubines and he had them set up in their own little homes. And every morning they'd have to get up, they'd have to bathe with these oils and perfumes and beautify themselves and all line up at the king, where the king will go, the king would walk past all of them and not look, not smell, not acknowledge and move on. And that he was, he never physically touched them or were intimate with them ever on. And that's because he said, ah, Yitzhahara, you tricked me here. I'm not gonna be foolish and let you do that. So I'm gonna take these things that are permitted to me and I'm gonna deny you that so that all you can crave is that which is actually permitted. Wow. <laughs> Because he recognized that, that that hunger is never satiated. Yep, yep. Interesting, fascinating. Well, where does it go from here? He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. We can relate that to our times, I think, certainly, because how many places does the American army have bases all over the world? <laughs> you know, I mean, there's not a place where we don't have a military presence, hardly. There's a... Uh, not yet on the moon. Uh, I wouldn't assume that. <laughs> we have I mean, they're working on the Space Force and everything. And, and there is an Apple show out there about making a military installation on the moon now. Yeah. Like an alternative timeline. Yeah. But not something that we're actively aware of, let's put it that way. Yeah, I would say that's true. But on, on the surface of the planet, Earth, uh, yeah. there's something like 117 countries have American military bases in them. It's over 100, yeah. I know. Which is great. It's actually really cool. It's this cool thing to think about is that there's this old phrase that the sun never sets on the British Empire. That that's how widespread the British Empire was. Right. And linguists in the past couple of years have discovered that the British accent today was not the British accent during colonial times. That our American accent today was the original British accent at the time. Really? That they changed their accent over the past 200 years. And that we kept the original British accent. And now the sun never sets on the American empire. Well, that's kind of a weird twist. I know, I know so it seems like it's just a change of flag. Yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly is the same manifest destiny yeah. ideology and certainly the same white supremacy ideology. 
Um, so it, it takes an interesting turn here there at verse six in, in book two or chapter two. Starts out, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood, you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So if I'm reading this correctly, that speaks as a kind of, speaks to a kind of backlash rebellion against the, the oppressive forces. Does it not? Yeah, let's, let's take a look here. Shall all of these not take up a parable about him and a metaphor and riddles regarding him? One will say, woe to him who amasses that which is not his. How long can he go on? He burdens himself heavily with thick mud. Will those who would bite you not rise up suddenly? And will those who will cause you to tremble not awaken? You will be plunder for them because you have pillaged many nations and all the remnants of the nations will pillage you for the blood of men, the youth spelt and the robbery of their land, the city and all of its inhabitants. It makes me think of the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Yeah. And that the, the bigger that you expand your empire, the more work it is to maintain your empire, then the more force that has to be involved because now you have more people that are subjugated and more potential rebellions. That's, that's kind and, of what resonated with me. That's kind of the timber, the, the tenor or timber I got of that, the tone I got out of those four verses, six, seven, or three, six, seven, and eight. That's kind of how they read to me. Yeah, the, the whole business himself with thick mud, I love that metaphor. Rashi says, ill-gained fortune will prove to be nothing but a heavy burden of sin. But it's um, it's evocative to me because there's this um, book by the Ram Call called Mesidah Yesharim, which is the path of the just. Or the path. It's about how do you become more holy? How do you become more in line with your walk with God and not get lost by the ways of the world? And he says, uh, one of the struggles we have is that we need to wake up like a lion, jump out of bed, because the nature of man, we're made from dirt, we're made from mud, and so we're very dense and sluggish, and we like to lay in a resting state. Well, that's true. <laughs> and so that, that, it is, but it's like the concept, if he burns himself heavily with thick mud, he's weighing himself by, down by the, the pure physicality and animal desire that he's allowed himself to have, now is what's burying him becomes his own burden he suffocates under its weight yeah yes yeah i do I feel like, like that's happening in um senate hall this week <laughs> <laughs> isn't that the truth oh boy we could go for a whole episode of what happened in dc on the sixth and continues to unfold let's kind of put a pin in that and get back to it next season because by then it'll be old yeah. history right <laughs> well, at least i hope it's old history by then yeah um, so then he continues, he finishes, you've shed human blood, you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You've plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. So it's interesting to me, he says, you've plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. So that's creating such ruin and havoc and devastation through greed that you end up destroying yourself. Well, it's interesting. Um, here's where we get an a, uh, interesting concept, a Jewish perspective on the soul, right? And we've recently had those conversations um, mine in the art scroll says, woe to him who gains evil profit for his house so that he may set his nest up high to be rescued from the grasp of evil. You have counseled shame for your house by cutting off many peoples and you have sinned against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall and a sliver will answer it from, your beam, from the beams. And I like that it's uh, that part that you have sinned against your soul because we, in, in Jewish concept, this neshama, this divine spark within us is holy. And that it's whether that's in charge or whether our animal nature is in charge is the question. And then he's allowing his animal nature to be in charge with the evil prophet and cutting off people. And that that's causing him to sin against the very nature of his own body. Yeah, yeah. 
which then is interesting, talks about the sliver and the stone crying out. This, this, this metaphor is very beautiful. So the very stones and memes of your house, and it says, um, justify you built your house through bloodshed and plunder. So it's, he becomes the victim of his own conquest. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, even, even people like Chris Hedges today are talking about how in, in the last stages of a crumbling empire, all of the evil or all of the warfare, all of the militarism, all of the ruin and destruction that they brought around the rest of the world, they bring it home. They bring it to their yeah. own right? And lo and behold, <laughs> here we are. Mm. Well, that's something we've seen with every world empire throughout yeah. history. Yeah. And I can see how, you know, they say, well, this could be the Babylonian Empire, or it could be the Roman Empire, it could be a future Messianic reign, because while we haven't experienced this Messianic era, we, we have seen the Babylonian Empire fall as a result. We've seen what happened with Nebuchadnezzar, and we've seen what happened with um, Emperor Nero and Rome. Mm -hmm. And when we see what happened with Alexander and Greek in Greece and all, all these different armies that they became those of their own greatness. Even Napoleon, he was so great. And it was his own military conquest that undid him because he couldn't let go of his pride. Right, right. And the German army actually lost because they extended their empire so far that it came home to Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. And that's said differently, but it's the same message, really, the same semiotic as what was in the yeah. Hebrew. You, you well, want evidence to prove you guilty? Look at what you built. Yeah, it's the blood stains are on the woodwork in your home. Yeah. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I want to rewind just a second. Sure. Um, a thought just came to me. We learned this in our cohort with um, Dr. Len Swedes. And I was, I was just recently talking about this at the Shabbos table with my neighbors. It was this this concept of the table that you have, that your shulchan, which is how you live your life and what is your life is judged by. Everything that you've done at your table is part of your testament to your rewards and your sufferings and judgment. And that was this Jewish tradition throughout ages that it's not so much practice now, but it used to be, whereas when you died, your table was transformed into your coffin that held you. So that's a literal, explanation of this will be a testimony for what you've done because mm. it's going to be what carries you into death yeah yeah wow that's rich that's a heck of a metaphor isn't it yeah mm. so it's it very fascinating i thought that was really cool I was like gotta capture this yeah that is good that is good okay i think you know, there's a little bit left here Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wine's guild till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you for you have shed human blood and destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. That line's that's the second time that line has come you know, come through, isn't it? At least twice. She had human blood, destroyed lands and cities. Yeah. Um, there's a key word difference that we have. It seems like a small thing that's not. Okay. Uh, I have nakedness. Uh, I've already forgotten what I had. Let me back up. I have nakedness. Let your nakedness be exposed. Okay, so you, I thought I thought for a second you had said naked body. That's different than nakedness. Like, uh, well, in fifteen it says so that he can gaze on their naked bodies, and in 16, yeah, that's what I'm referring to. In sixteen it says let your nakedness be exposed. So, so that's what, interesting because I don't have that in sixteen. Um, I have uh, you gather your anger and talk against you may look upon their nakedness. You're sated more with shame than with glory. You too will drink and become confounded. The cup of Hashem's right hand is turned upon you, and will vomit, and the vomit of shame will cover your glory. Well, becoming confounded in 16 
but naked bodies in 15, but you have nakedness in 15, right? Yes, but that's a, that's a different understanding. So when I see this word nakedness, it draws me back to a Torah event um, with Noah. Noah. Right, with his son looking up to him to cover his nakedness, right? Yeah, so that's the, that is the traditional Christian understanding. There's multiple understandings within a Jewish tradition. Some say, oh, that's what it was. But then they go, but then it's brought up, well, wait a second. If that's why, if that's what it was, then why are you not cursing the son who made you undignified? You're cursing his son. So what does this have to do with future generations? Why not that generation? And so then they, they argue, well, it's not because it was viewing the naked body. It's because he either castrated him or sodomized him. Hmm. And those both have to do with um, replication of future generations. And that's why he was cutting off that line. Because that, that's a generational sin. I see. Okay. Wow. That's pretty severe. <laughs> and so there with that difference that, may, that makes sense to me why i don't see naked body in the next verse and it instead is referring to shame constantly and this confusion this conf this confounded life because it's it changes the essence of who you are and how you go about things and all you have is a sense of shame boy if if, if there's that if there's that deep a difference in the message in the torah on these two verses Torah on these two verses that really says that somebody the Greeks or somebody has really buried a whole deeper message here yes which is why I love looking at the direct Hebrew yeah because there's nothing in these two verses as it appears in English anyway I don't know what it might have been in the original Greek but there's nothing in the English that speaks to that sort of uh, perverse sinful behavior you know, the well, not so much the circumcision, well, but the sodomy. Well, well, not circumcision, but castration. Castration. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. Um, there is there is a difference here. I want to point out is yeah. that we refer to Greek, right? Yeah. One thing the Greek, well, a few things the Greek Empire was known about. Come on, they sodomy was not an issue for them that was like something they glorified because the greek empire was all about the physique and the glory of the physical body yep. and that's part of actually when the romans took over and the romans adopted part of those practices that also led to the downfall of Rome, is because they they were not having future generations born because of how steep they were involved in that yeah, yeah. so i could see where they'd say in their translation well, this isn't an issue so let's rephrase it to something that might be an issue yeah yeah yeah, that's interesting. Not not being aware of any of that when I read it through the first time, I just I read it as a broad symbol of lust, generally speaking. Um, getting others drunk so that your lust can be poured out upon them, uh, represented here in the metaphor of gazing on their naked bodies. I just read that as a broad statement of lust, an exercise yeah. of lust by taking advantage of others. Which is well, we also think about these empires. Um, what do, what do they do with the people they conquered and took in to be servants in the kingdoms? They castrated them. Yeah. Yeah. The males, anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I was like, they're not a threat if they're castrated. Yeah. Mm, fascinating. Wow. Okay. So you'll be filled with shame. You, the conqueror, the oppressor, will be filled with shame instead of glory. It's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed, your confoundedness be exposed. The cup in the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. So this is almost like justice is being served, right? Yeah. And disgrace will cover your glory. You, what you've taken to be your glory will become your shame. I think you mentioned shame being the, the theme in these verses to some extent. Yeah. It is, uh, it's your own actions that convict you and sentence you. Yeah, yeah. You've done this to yourself, as um, Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> you always have to work in the Star Wars reference, don't you? <laughs> I don't feel like 
I've done any Star Wars references in a while. So, but that's that's what makes me think of because it's like this whole argument, like Anakin, all these thinking errors. Look how this organization has failed me, but really he's just stuck in his own steep anger because he he didn't even reach out to anybody. He just assumed the worst and then went and did things, and then it and then it killed his wife because he was so angry. And he's like, "Look what you did!" And Obi Wan was like, "I didn't do that. You did that." Not having seen the how many how many episodes how many film features are there now in Star Wars? Seven. Um, far too many. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite the franchise. I think Star Wars invented the Hollywood franchise. Well, perhaps, but it was Spaceballs that carried it on. <laughs> I did enjoy Spaceballs. I will have to say, and I like the early Star Wars. I just didn't stick with the whole franchise. You know, some people don't realize is that Spaceballs is actually a true story. That's where our space lasers were stored that we used to cause the California fires. Oh, I say, okay. And you <laughs> call me a conspiracy nut. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, as, you know, when, when certain Congress people say, oh, well, I know the Jews have space lasers and that's how they started the fires. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like the one legislature in Florida a couple years back said, you know, the problem we have global warming is because the Jews control the weather. Yeah, Florida man. There's your Florida man talking. Right? I'm thinking, man, if I control the weather, what am I doing wrong? It never works for me. <laughs> How am I not making it better than this, right? Well, one of these lines did really strike me in terms of our current state of the world. Uh, yeah. Verse 17, your destruction of animals will terrify you. Uh, sooner or later, the extinction being wrought upon all of the animal and plant kingdom uh, is going to be, it's already pretty terrifying to those of us who are awoke, awakened already to the extinction that's uh, ongoing. But it's so this is also a callback too to um, the Passover events and the Makos, the plagues. Yep. Yep, it is. Um, because, you know, it's, it's the, we had the plague of the wild beasts mm -hmm. and that led to the massive amount of destruction. So it's this concept of God is bringing about uh, the ruin of an empire by means of their own idolatry and sin. Yeah, yeah. It sure is happening. But as, as you pointed out, it's, it's well, it, it's like I said, it's almost as if there's never a time in which it can't be interpreted this way. Yeah. Okay, then it finishes off or the next couple of three verses of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? or an image that teaches lies. And I really like that one, images that teach mm -hmm. lies. For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. Just false idolatry pretty much pervades, that pervades both of those verses. But it's interesting that uh, it goes from the second part of 18 and the first part of 19, it goes from woe to the one who makes it trusting in his own creation, make an idol who cannot speak. And then woe to him who says, as if they want it to speak, come to life or in stone, come to you know, wake up. Um, it was fascinating um, thinking about that from a couple different perspectives. Is, uh, we, we have the story of Avraham, father Abraham, and um, in the Midrash, it tells us that his father was an idol maker. And that when he was left in charge, Abraham was left in charge of the tents. And this is when he was still learning and still had this inclination towards this monotheism of the time. And that um, one person came to buy an idol. And he, he argued with the person, was like, why are you buying this idol? What are you going to do? How is this going to help you? My father carved it this morning. You're an idiot. And that, um, and then later on that day, he took one idol and smashed it to pieces and positioned all the other idols around it with a big one there. And his father came home and said, Avram, what did you do? He says, I didn't do anything. Those two big ones, they got an argument over who was stronger or one killed the other. And his father says, you're an idiot. They can't do any of that. I made them. He has, and then Avram responds back, and why do you worship them? Mm -hmm. that's that's an interesting backstory i like that yeah and so seeing that i was like huh yeah we it's don't like backstories in the christian tradition 
you know, that backstory I originally heard at a Christian seminary. Really? Well, so I guess we do get them, but it's fascinating now. But Bethany College in Northern California it was it was an assembly church yeah. seminary that they're they're teaching from that because they constantly use the midrash to d discuss events in Torah uh -huh. and have different understanding of the text. It was very fascinating. Yeah. Well, one thing I liked about Lynn is he he put a lot of backstory around it himself when he in his teaching. Yeah. So the other part, though, I, I thought was fascinating, is um, it says to wood wake up and to silence don't arise. Will it teach? The whole is cold of gold and silver, and there's no spirit within it. And what's the spirit we're talking about? We're talking about the neshama, that spark of life, that divinity, that holy divine spark that makes us separate from the animals. And what's fascinating is <clears throat> we have in tales of the Gemara, and most, most people are familiar with the, the story of the Maharal in Prague, of the golem that was created where they, they, they made this carving of a, of a humanoid form. It was the first android, the first, the first creation of this, where they made this carving of an animal form and using the incantations that they wrote onto a scroll that made it into an amulet. And they put it in its mouth and it woke up and it would follow the commands that were written on the letters placed on its mouth. But yet it could not speak because it had no soul. It could not think because it had no soul. It only did literally what it was commanded to do without any reasoning and because of that it would destroy just as much as it saved and they had to put it out of commission yep i have heard that story <laughs> what's so i think it's fascinating it's like wake up and arise it, it can't teach it can't do anything it has no soul yeah in your and that's what you choose to worship in the way you have the text what's the word that i had here is breath there is no breath in it uh spirit What's the Hebrew word? Let's take a look. That's verse 19 here. And Um, ruach, breath, wind, spirit. Okay, we we kind of touched on that earlier, and yeah. yeah. So I was wondering if that if ruach was the word that appeared here for that, and it's interesting to me that it did. That's. This is just to see why this resonated so much with me for our times. I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. It's like, well, I find the interesting ruach that we use is that what merges your spiritual soul to your physical soul. It's the glue. Yeah. And they don't have that glue. That's why they have no spirituality. Right. Anyway, this is just good stuff. Good stuff. It makes sense of somebody who places their faith and trust and worships that which is devoid of any spiritual components would lack a true spirituality in their life and they place their trust in earthly matters. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and what could come of that but ruinous greed? Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you place all your faith, all your trust, all your love, all your devotion, all your righteousness, so to speak, falsely placed in materiality that has to become just a self-destructive devouring rapacious greed there's no other way for it to to play out and lo and behold here we are i think what's unique this time i mean we can speak of this relevant to previous civilizations and as far as they knew in their time it was the entire world right it was all of the world as they knew that world. But now it's all the world as an entire planet. And we know that it's the entire planet that's at stake. You know, yeah. the world goes beyond the planet, obviously. But there, I love the phrase that I think XR came up with originally back in March of 19. There is no planet B. <laughs> it's true. Well, I mean, Jewishly, 
we may be on planet 300 for all we know. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying it's like, we, we, we think we're the first time that creations happened. As a concept of the matrix, right? Yeah. Neo talking is like, wait, you think this is the first time? No, you're like generation 4,000, whatever. We, we do this every time. We do this every lifetime. This is a constant resetting to improve the system. You know, it's interesting. I guess I was in my teens and I, we were studying in science class. I might've been like eighth or ninth grade and we were, we were revisiting, for me, it was revisiting the solar system and looking at the planets and their orbits and their distances from the sun. And of course we had looked at that in the third grade and again in the fifth grade. And here we were in like, I think it was eighth grade or ninth grade science, we were looking at it again. And I had this kind of flash of what if, because by then we were talking about how the universe is constantly expanding, you know, yeah. acceleratingly so. And I had the sense that, well, this earth is just what, if I can get these planets in the right order, Mars was Earth six billion years ago. And Venus will be Earth six billion years from now. You know, in other words, you're saying Elon Musk is right to colonize Mars. <laughs> I, I, I'm not talking about colonization. <laughs> I'm talking about the evolution of planetary states in time, because there is this zone where that we happen to be in where life emerges. Flourishes. Yeah, you're right. And flourishes. But on the two planets that are our neighbors, further from the sun and closer to the sun, they seem to be, they call this the Goldilocks zone. That is a, a, a phrase that's used in the climate community. Post Goldilocks, you get Mars. Pre Goldilocks, you get Venus. And in billions and billions of years of circling the sun, as we're expanding, you know, we're just what Mars was six billion years ago and what Venus will become six billion years from now, if I'm getting the order right. I might have that back, yeah. but it just, I, it, and I, you know, I haven't really pursued that or looked into it because it sounds like such a crazy idea, but it, it's, it, there are traditions, religions, mythologies within which that would be a viable cosmology, you know? Yeah. Or at least a plausible physics explanation of multiple civilizations occurring through time, but so far apart that you have no record of it. You know, I mean, how would the people of Mars have left something here in this Goldilocks zone for us to discover? You see what I'm saying? Anyway, yeah. I'm, just, I'm kind of ranting because that's really an off the wall kind of thing. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I've, and in Christianity, I've heard different perspectives like, oh my goodness, do exist or maybe they don't. And, you know, the Jewish perspective is, it doesn't, <clears throat> it doesn't matter. It's not relevant. <laughs> they, they, they could very well exist. It, it doesn't change the fact that we're here and now and what we're supposed to do here and now. I, I would go along with that. Uh, it's, it's, it's a whole other question that is intriguing about other life forms and beyond or behind or ahead of ours um, in time or in space. Yeah. We, could be, we could be surrounded by aliens who are just here in a different time, right? Sitting here next to me, you know? Oh, you're referring to the spiritual dimension of what not we can't see? Not necessarily, just an advanced enough, technologically advanced enough species that they have figured out time travel. And they find us stupid humans to be so fascinating that they just, just kind of like we all go to amusement parks, they get about three seconds ahead or behind us and come and just watch us like we watch movies. <laughs> I get what you're saying. I mean, if we view a timeline as more <clears throat> Bali or Jeremy Barry than we do as a line, it's it's not that it's not as hard as we make it sound. Yeah. Anyway, so this finishes out. Verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And that's where it finishes the uh, answer to uh, Habakkuk's plea in book two. And like I say, there were just many lines in that many in those verses that I thought resonated with 
the sixth mass extinction that we've wrought upon ourselves and the reasons why we've done so. I got what you're saying. Um, mine, mine's very similar. Uh, Hashem's in his holy sanctuary, let the world be silent before him. And I think about the world being silent before him is like that's judgment day in a way. That's all right, let's clean the slate. Let's let's start from onto the next era, you know, this world to come. Yeah. Let's bring accounts. So do we want to where we say that prayer? God sits in his holy sanctuary and we're silent before him every year with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there a Christian analogy to Rosh Hashanah? I mean, other than um, every Wednesday night and Sunday for Baptists, you know? <laughs> so Rosh Hashanah is typically generally misunderstood. The whole world's like, oh, it's the new year. You party and drink. And yeah. we're like, no, it's, it's the new year. This is when God's judging us for this past year. And he's writing down what's going to happen this next year. And so we're pleading before him. And by the way, we're pleading for you too that we can be given a favorable year. Yeah. It's yeah. this period of we recognize kingship and justice. And like the songs we sing all have a very uh, regal melody to them. Whereas on Rosh Hashanah, the more solemn and more, it's, it's, it's more wearing white, sways you. This is spiritual aspect. Rosh Hashanah is, is very kingly. We recognize he is the king. We even fast all the way up to the first half of the day. I mean, our, our prayers typically for Rosh Hashanah don't end until like two or so. And then we have a we have a really late first meal of the day because that during the time of fasting, we're in court, we're petitioning, we're pleading. We're not going to make ourselves look like gluttons. And then afterwards, well, why are we eating? We're eating because we recognize that although we're being judged, we, we know that God's going to judge in our favor in the end. Yeah. We're taking our faith in that, so to say. Yeah. It's interesting that Christians have taken, and this probably is a Greek influence, Christians have taken that, that whole notion of being judged and kind of parked it in a world that isn't here yet. <laughs> you know, there is preaching and sermonizing and teaching from scripture around living with the consequences of your sins in this life as a form of judgment but it doesn't really resonate with the throne of judgment until, you know, that godly judgment until the next world, you know, or the second, the, the kingdom come. Um, it's kind of fascinating that, that that really kind of says party like it's 1999, you know, I can't ever think of that song, you remember? That it, it reduces the new year to that for us even for christians yeah. what's the bigger what's the biggest event on the calendar for christians around new year's super bowl which is weird <laughs> but that well it is and it isn't it's weird that it would be something like that but if you think about it as the circus in the coliseum in rome i mean they had gladiator circuses all over the roman kingdom yeah and, but the one in oh, Rome, okay. man, that was the big show. That was the 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 big tent, you know, the tall pole. And but like in Catholic and Greek Orthodox traditions, it's isn't it? What do they call it, Annunciation Day? Or it's 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 this it's the day that Jesus was circumcised. Ah, I don't know the term, but I know what you mean. Yeah. And it's like that's the ending of their twelve days of Christmas or whatever it is. That's more British than it is. Um, I mean, I think they have Boxing Day in the British. I just remember, I remember seeing on Catholic calendars, like I, I, where, where I used to work, uh, my colleague was a Catholic, an ex-Catholic. And it's like, she had knowledge because she went to Catholic school. She had knowledge about the Catholic stuff. And so sometimes we talk because like, well, this isn't interesting. And then she'd be like, well, what you're saying is I never heard this. <laughs> so. mm. I can look it up. Well, I, 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 I think we have to address a bit. Um, my query is, have we addressed what it is that at the end of yesterday's recording, we, we still, you still haven't felt like we, we got there? Well, we, I do. We have. We have. Um, because what we had not gotten to was those verses we went through today where there were several lines that leaped out of this for me in that first reading some many weeks ago 
about just what's happening today being so aptly described in those lines without resort to the anachronistic symbolism that is so common, the chariots and the horses and the shields and the spears and the bows and the arrows and all that stuff. There's not any of that here, really. There's just the wine, right? The intoxication. There are the false idols, the wooden stone. But there's no mention of chariots or horses or any of that militarism, although the, the concept of militaristic empire is still quite vivid here. It is vivid. But you know what I'm seeing from this is we're not discussing the battle. We're discussing the consequences exactly. of the battle. Exactly. What you, what, what you did to yourself, what you brought upon yourself. Well, and the emphasis that is something we brought upon ourselves. Now that's mm -hmm. always in prophecy. You know, we we our own sin is what brings the, the wrath of God upon us, right? And that's a kind of recurring theme here just as well. But it's put in such a more I don't know, such a more spiritual way, I guess, for lack of a better way. It gets more to the heart and soul of the sin than the physical exercise of the sin, like waging war and battle to ruin uh, in, in Revelation and in Isaiah and in um, who else, Daniel. That's always, there's always a very militaristic battle kind of thing raging on. And that's not so much happening here. It's, it's there and it is the same, but it's not described in the same terms. It is, as you say, it's more, this is how it plays out. These, this is the wreck and the ruin, the slaughter and the bloodshed that is left in the wake of that war and that battle. You know, it's more focusing on the impact than the act, I guess would be a simple way to say it. And that's how, that's how it played out for me because, or resonated with me, because we're already, what we're suffering today is what was baked in 30 years ago to the climate. What we're going to suffer for the next 30 years is already baked in. And to make matters worse, the latest, uh, one of the most stunning things I've read on that lately was that all of the work that came out with the IPCC and pretty much all the rest of the climatology research um, were, was based on computer simulations and models and data techniques from the year 2020 or 2000, 2001. So they were 20 year old models. Well, yeah. last year they came up with a new model, new models. They, they came up in 2019, 2020, they replaced all the old models. And the projections prior to that were, well, we'll hit two degrees centigrade sometime around 2050. No, we're going to be at five degrees centigrade around 2050, not two, five. And that's the global average. Inland, it's more like 10 or 12 degrees centigrade. And the old models talked about inches of sea rise. The new models talk about meters of sea rise. I mean, it's, it's astonishing just how, how off the new models say the old models were. And the new um, COP, what's, I forget what COP stands for, climate, it's a climate assembly of experts. COP24, I think, is happening this year. Um, and they've happened for 20 years and they've never made a difference. They all come together and say the same thing, how much worse things are getting and what needs to be done and then nothing gets done and we just keep on going. And now it's pretty well baked in. At five degrees centigrade, the survival rate is somewhere around 1%. Wow. Yeah, and on that note. <laughs> on that note, we not only close the book on taking a look at prophecy in Habakkuk, but we get to finish our rounded episode 10, our yeah. season finale for season three. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have plenty of fodder to discuss next season with everything that's happening now. Uh, well, already, we'll be behind when we start the next season. But I, let's, I, we did put a pin in us talking about how we met, how we came to be friends, and how we ended up doing this pod series, this video log yeah. podcast series. 
So let's start with that if you if you're up for it. Well, yeah, I think that should definitely be the intro. Okay, that that makes sense. That sounds good to me. All right, thank you. It's been it's been a rush. It's been a blast, and I I love how we're able to dive into headlines and current events and signs that are being seen today, and then we're able to finish it with signs being seen thousands of years ago. Yeah, that's that's prophecy in a nutshell. Uh, it's, it's it, I, what I what I enjoy most, I think, is you and I don't really fight and argue about these things. And I know that there are um, colleagues of yours in your community who would be just in my face but for what I don't know and what I think I know. And you know as well. As I, I, I don't. You know as well as I. I don't do. think that in my community. I don't think you experience that because this is Portland and. <laughs> Well, there um, is it may look like this horrible place on the news, but honestly, that's just a square mile. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, everyone here is pretty laid back and non-confrontational. Like, fine, if that's what you want to believe, you can be wrong. That's okay. <laughs> well, you know as well as I do here in Central Florida, it ain't that way. If I were, if I were to just go out randomly, just in my subdivision, just go out randomly and pick. I don't know, three people and say, sit in this session with me and let's see what, you know, we as Christians and my friend, this Jewish colleague of mine has to say and see what we think about it. Oh man, there would be ranting and gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair. <laughs> it would be ugly. I think. It's true, which is why I love this podcast because we're able to, we're able to see beyond that. We're able, our, our purpose is not to find the conflict, but to find where we can get along and build that bridge. Exactly. Bridges of Shalom. Amen to that. Thank you, brother. Thank you. We'll talk again soon and start the new season. Thank you, listeners. Thank See you. Next season. Send questions, comments, and suggestions to semiobytes at gmail.com. Semiobytes is a podcast co-hosted by Yidbrick and Semiocity that answers Semitic questions via Semioc analysis by addressing misunderstandings to build a bridge of shalom between Judaism and Christianity. Semiobytes is a component of the Track 2 dissertation process at Portland Seminary for Jonathan Esterman and Terry Rankin.